Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. Do you ever wonder how to accelerate your growth, healing, and evolution without hard work, meditation, or spending thousands? Over my years as a conscious seeker, I've encountered one DNA activation and healing method that stands out above the rest and does just that. It's a uniquely potent evolutionary modality that helped me break out of feeling blocked and disconnected, allowing me to unfold more and more of my potential and true self, as well as deepening my spiritual connection, enhancing my energy levels, and more fully activating my body's healing mechanisms. It also remedied a major but little-known energetic blockage which most people have but don't even realize. Now this convenient transformational method forms the core of my Evolve Yourself course, which has helped hundreds of spiritually awake people to accelerate their growth and evolution with minimal effort or cost. Learn everything you need to know at evolveyourself.live. Alright, hello and welcome to this episode of Truthiverse. This time around, we are going to detail the true history of smallpox vaccination and five huge historical vaccination frauds that have been suppressed by the medical establishment, including deceptions, cover-ups, and empirical facts we were clearly meant to forget. As you'll see, these examples that follow prove conclusively that opposition from the scientific and medical communities to the practice of vaccination is neither unscientific nor a new phenomenon courtesy of the anti-vax movement of the modern era, as the establishment would have us believe. In fact, opposition to vaccination goes back right to the beginnings of vaccination itself when eminent medical personages took a stand against it, recognizing the unscientific and irrational basis behind the thinking and the theory, and also recognizing the actual real-world damage it was causing people. Okay, so before we get into point number one, or category number one of the, the five categories, I will quote from Dr. Glenn Detman of the modern era, who says, It is pathetic and ludicrous to say we ever vanquished smallpox with vaccines when only 10% of the population was ever vaccinated. Okay, let's start with Vaccine fraud, smallpox vaccine fraud number one, the frauds of the founding father. Edward Jenner, who lived from 1749 to 1823, has been lauded as a medical pioneer and saver of the lives of millions of people for supposedly developing the earliest crude forms of vaccination. But is he really all that? Was he even an original thinker? What if he turned out to be, shock horror, a charlatan? See for yourself. Jenner set up practice as a, quote, surgeon in Berkeley in the 1700s, but in fact, he did not earn the title of doctor at all. Jenner's history is actually quite amusing when you start to dig into it. As Dr. Walter Hadwin explained during an address in 1896, sometime after Jenner had died, over 100 years later, and I quote, Now this man Jenner had never passed a medical examination in his life. He, be he belonged to the good old times when George III was the king, when medical examinations were not compulsory. Jenner looked upon, uh, sorry, looked upon the whole thing as a superfluity, and he hung up surgeon apothecary over his door without any of the qualifications that warranted the assumption. It was not until 20 years after he was in practice that he thought it advisable to get a few letter, letters after his name. Consequently, he then communicated with a Scotch university and obtained the degree of doctor of medicine for the sum of 15 pounds and nothing more. Audience laughs. It is true that a little while before he had obtained a fellowship of the Royal Society, but his latest biographer and apologist, Dr. Norman Moore, had to confess that it was obtained by little less than a fraud. 
It was obtained by writing a most extraordinary paper about a fabulous cuckoo, for the most part composed of arrant absurdities and imaginative freaks, such as no ornithologist of the present day would pay the slightest heed to. A few years after this, rather dissatisfied with the only med medical qualification he had obtained, Jenner communicated with the University of Oxford and asked them to grant him their honorary degree of MD. And after a good many fruitless attempts, he got it. Then he sent to the Royal College of Physicians in London to get their diploma, and even presented his Oxford degree as an argument in his favour. But they considered he had had quite enough on the cheap already, and told him distinctly that until he passed the usual examinations, they were not going to give him any more. Again, that was from an 1896 speech by Dr. Walter Hadwin. So about 20 years after practicing his special brand of so-called medicine, Jenner, the professional charlatan, realized he might benefit from some extra letters after his name, and thus it was that in 1790 he simply bought a medical degree for 15 pounds. This is the man who helped create what is now a multi-billion dollar medical empire, a person who was not only a complete fraud and confidence man, but evidently a pathological liar. Still, at least Jenner tried to create the appearance of medical credentials, whereas his present-day descendant and proselytizer Bill Covey Pass Gates has precisely none and doesn't seem to care. Okay, so let's continue the vaccination fraud timeline. In 1791, Edward Jenner vaccinated his 18-month-old son with swinepox and eight years later in 1798 with cowpox. His son died of tuberculosis at the age of 21, and Jenner thereafter chose not to vaccinate his second son. So yes, he became a refuser of sorts, at least where his own family's health was concerned. Slightly ironic. In 1796, Jenner was living in Gloucestershire, England, and as a result of this, he was falsely credited with the concept of vaccination, which he actually appropriated from the local dairymaids. Dr. Hadwin, in his 1896 speech, explained, and I quote, Jenner was not, however, the discoverer of the vaccine concept. The whole thing was a superstition of the Gloucestershire dairymaids years before Jenner was born. The crowd laughs again. And the very experiment, so-called, that he performed had been performed by an old farmer named Benjamin Jesty 20 years previously. And Hadwin added, When Jenner first of all heard the story of the cowpox legend that the, dairy, the dairymaids talked about, that if you only had cowpox, you can't have smallpox, he began to mention it at the meetings of the Medico-Convivial Society where the old doctors of the day met together to smoke their pipes, drink their glasses of grog, and talk over their cases. But he no sooner mentioned it than they laughed at it. The, the cow doctors have told him of hundreds of cases where smallpox had followed cowpox, and Jenna found he would have to drop it. So yes, ladies and gents, vaccination began with an utterly unscientific superstition back, unbacked by any evidence at all and propagated by the local English dairymaids to one self-confident crank named Edward Jenner, a medical fraud who bought his credentials for £15 and who is now essentially um, idolised and worshipped through the Temple of Vaccinia, which is a real location in the United States, which we'll come back to. In 1801, the first widespread experimentation with vaccines reputedly began. Jenner had successfully self-promoted and marketed his pseudo-medicine and pseudoscience in spite of the overwhelming evidence against his foundational premise. In 1802, Jenner petitioned the English Parliament, the House of Commons, for funding, using blatant falsehoods, stating that vaccination can be done with perfect safety. Now, where have we heard that before? And the English government awarded Jenner £10,000 for continued experimentation. In his excellent book, The Horrors of Vaccination Exposed, Charles M. Higgins said Jenner was award, awarded £30,000, which perhaps pertains to Jenner's 1807 triumphant petition five years later, which landed him further funding. 
So moving on another eight years to 1810, the London Medical Observer, volume 6, 1810, publishes details of 535 cases of smallpox after vaccination, 97 fatal cases of smallpox following vaccination, and 150 cases of serious injury from vaccination, 10 of whom happened to be medical men themselves. Jenner's arm-to-arm method of vaccination ultimately proved so dangerous that it was abandoned and even prohibited. His claim of lifelong immunity was quickly exposed to be one of the more more brazen pieces of self-promotional dishonesty that medical so-called science has ever produced. As vaccinated subjects continued to develop the diseases they were supposedly immunized against, this claim was modified to roughly seven years protection with subsequent revaccination deemed necessary. It seems that history does indeed repeat itself over and over again, folks. And by 1914, this so-called immunity period was shortened yet again to an estimated 6 to 12 months, sharply exposing the lunacy of the vaccine paradigm to anybody paying any attention. This this was over 200 years ago and nothing much has changed, folks. More recently, we were told we needed a COVAX, and then we needed a booster, and then we needed another booster, and then another, and so on and so forth. They keep pulling this scam and people keep falling for it. Now, Jenner's original claims for vaccination were stated in his petition to Parliament, March 17, 1802, in which he asked for a reward for his alleged discovery in the following words, and I quote, that your petitioner, having discovered that a disease which occasionally exists in a particular form among cattle, known by the name of the cowpox, admits of being inoculated on the human frame with the most perfect ease and safety, and is attended with the singularly beneficial effect of rendering through life the person so inoculated perfectly secure from the infection of the smallpox. Now, every single claim that he makes three key claims in this this passage, and every single one of them was false, and they were proved false in his lifetime. So he claimed to, to have been the discoverer of the idea, which was wrong. He actually got it from the, da- the dairy maids of rural England. Secondly, he admits, uh, sorry, he claims that you can inoculate uh, individuals with this method and it was perfectly safe, which also was proved to be wrong over and over and over again. It was shown to be dangerous. So that's, that's two strikes out of two. And uh, lastly, he claims that it renders people perfectly safe from infection for the entire lifetime, which was also false, and it was proved false very quickly. So three claims out of three were completely wrong, inaccurate, and really... I mean, unless he was completely delusional, you have to say he was lying. But it does seem Jenner had a, a specific type of personality, and he was determined to go down in history as as someone, as he wanted to count. He wanted statues... Um, of himself to be, you know, to be left behind. He wanted his name to live on. It was clear that he was searching for a legacy. So anyway, in his book called The Horrors of Vaccination Exposed, Charles M. Higgins referred to Jenner's statement as a tissue of falsehoods, and so it was. That, however, did not prevent Jenner from collecting the sum of £30,000, which was a massive amount of money at the time, from the British government as a reward for his imaginative fabrications. They funded him very handsomely indeed. In the following years, through to the 1900s, many cases of smallpox in those who had received the smallpox vaccine continued to be recorded. In the early 1820s, while the British government was still funding Jenner's experiments, he continued to do his best to hide the evidence showing his vaccines were causing more carnage than they were immunity. Pro-vaccinism became largely a face-saving exercise which has only swelled in scale and funding ever since. A study of Edward Jenner is a study in modern medicine's roots in charlatanry and fraud. 
And I quote from Dr. Archie Calicarinos here, an Australian doctor. The further I looked into it, the more shocked I became. I found that the whole vaccine business was indeed a gigantic hoax. Most doctors are convinced that they are useful, but if you look at the proper statistics and study the instance of these diseases, you will realize that this is not so. And he has an excellent book, which is worth checking out, called Every Second Child. And that is a reference to some of the field work he was doing where he found that every second child, he was sent out into the remote areas of Outback Australia to, to vaccinate the, um, the original people and the original uh, children. And he found that uh, these kids were uh, dying at a rate of 50% basically following these vaccination campaigns. So one out of every two children essentially was murdered by these vaccinations. And when he, when he woke up to what was going on, he stopped, he stopped uh, participating in it. Okay, so let's move on to number two, the smallpox statistics we were meant to forget. Now, many people are starting to catch on to the dangers inherent in vaccination, but too few realize at present that there is no shortage of instances where far more harm is done than presumed good. We venture right back to the beginning of the 20th century in England and find that there are similar numbers of vaccine-induced deaths and smallpox deaths, except in the case of children under five years of age, where the vaccine proved much riskier than smallpox itself, highlighting once more that the more vulnerable among us suffer the most at the point of the needle. And so let's quickly look at some numbers here. Smallpox deaths versus smallpox vaccine deaths. Data taken from the reports of the Registrar-General of England. So in 1906, there were a reported 21 smallpox deaths versus 29 smallpox vaccine deaths. The following year in 1907, they have recorded 10 smallpox deaths and 12 smallpox vaccine deaths. 1908, 12 smallpox deaths, 13 vaccine deaths. 1905 to 1910, they totaled 199 smallpox deaths and 99 vaccine deaths. But in children under five years, it was worse. Smallpox deaths tallied 26 versus smallpox vaccine deaths, 98. Now, the period from 1911 to 1913, they had 42 smallpox deaths recorded and 31 smallpox vaccine deaths. Children under five years, they recorded eight smallpox deaths and 30 smallpox vaccine deaths. Okay, so to return to the timeline, 1831, there was a smallpox outbreak in Württemberg, Germany, where 995 vaccinated people developed the disease. In 1831, the same year, 2,000 people in Marseille, France, who had received the smallpox vaccination, developed smallpox. Three, uh, sorry, 23 years later, 1854 in England, England legislates for compulsory vaccination. Despite everything that's already happened, they legislate for compulsory vax, widely opposed by many eminent doctors of the day. Several years later, we have... 1857 to 1859, this is the rise of some massive medical fascism. Vaccination in England is now enforced with fines for non-compliance, much to, much to the disgust of rational medical men around the country who vigorously oppose it. And thus begins the smallpox epidemic of England, which lasts until 1859, killing over 14,000 people. So as soon as they mandated it and enforced it, their smallpox deaths went through the roof. 1854 to 1863, a nine-year period, Smallpox now claims over 33,000 lives by this point, following the introductory of compulsory vaccination. 1863 to 1865, England's second major epidemic strikes, claiming a further 20,059 lives. 1870 to 72, England's third major epidemic claims 44,840 lives, the worst of the three following compulsory vaccination. So it just got worse and worse. In 1907, they uh, repealed the compulsory vaccination laws. The failure of vaccination was too obvious to disguise or spin 
with the PR methods available at the time. And several years later, we entered the period of 1910 through to 1933. And during this time, in England and Wales combined, only 109 children under the age of five died of smallpox versus 270 from the vaccination. It's estimated there are around 40 million people in the UK in 1910. In reality, improved living conditions had all but wiped out smallpox despite the vaccine-induced epidemics of prior decades. Repeat after me, folks. Safe and effective. Safe and effective. Safe and effective. Okay, point number three now. The city of Leicester. This is where sanitation trumped vaccination in spectacular fashion. And I'm going to quote here from Dr. Vernon Coleman, who is, uh, who is living, alive and kicking and has been in the medical system for decades now. And I quote, one of the medical profession's greatest boasts is that it eradicated smallpox through the use of the smallpox vaccine. I myself believed this claim for many years, but it simply isn't true. One of the worst smallpox epidemics of all time took place in England between 1870 and 1872, nearly two decades after compulsory vaccination was introduced. After this evidence that smallpox vaccination didn't work, the people of Leicester in the English Midlands refused to have the vaccine anymore. When the next smallpox epidemic struck in the early 1890s, the people of Leicester relied upon good sanitation and a system of quarantine. There was only one death from smallpox in Leicester during that epidemic. In contrast, the citizens of other towns who had been vaccinated died in vast numbers. Doctors and drug, drug companies may not like it, but the truth is that surveillance, quarantine and better living conditions got rid of smallpox, not the smallpox vaccine. Okay, moving ahead a little bit in our timeline here to 1914, Dr. C. Killick Millard, who was the medical officer of health in Leicester, England, he published The Vaccination Question and admitted that the city of Leicester, with a population of around 300,000 people at the time, had for 30 years abandoned infant vaccination and yet miraculously somehow experienced an enormous decline, and I quote, enormous decline in smallpox mortality. So we should consider his words very carefully because Millard was a man who at the outset was pro-vaccine. And yet, although the endless repetition of vaccine propaganda and dogma had definitely made an impression on the collective mind by the 1900s, his empirical experience, that is his, his, his real world experience with people, with the city of Leicester in particular, caused him to change his views. And to quote Millard, the two crucial and outstanding facts which I wish to lay stress upon are one, the unexpected and remarkable experience of the town of Leicester, which for 30 years has abandoned infantile vaccination, yet has shown an enormous decline in smallpox mortality. Number two, the fact that although infantile vaccination is falling more and more into disuse throughout the whole country, yet smallpox, contrary to all pro-vaccinist expectation and prophecy, continues to decline and has almost disappeared. The striking facts that in Leicester, without infantile vaccination, the, disease, the decline has been greater than in most places, and that throughout the country, smallpox has continued to decrease in spite of the falling off in vaccination, should surely be sufficient grounds for legitimate doubt. If it can be shown that sanitation, thoroughly carried out, is alone sufficient for the effective control of smallpox in this country, as in Leicester, why inflict upon the community universal vaccination with all its inseparable drawbacks? Moreover, what justific sorry, justification can there be any longer for compulsion? It cannot be denied that vaccination causes in the aggregate very considerable injury to health, most of it only temporary, but some permanent. We must never forget that vaccination is an evil. There is not the slightest evidence that vaccination, apart from its presumed effect in preventing smallpox, is of the least value or anything but detrimental to the human race. During the last decade, the deaths from vaccinia have several times outnumbered those from smallpox. 
whilst if we have regard to the amount of ill health caused by the two diseases, and putting aside for the moment of uh, the moment the question of the alleged effect of vaccination in lessening smallpox, it looks as if vaccinia, vaccine-induced disease, were becoming, so far as the community is concerned, the more serious disease of the two. In other words, folks, the lesson is that it isn't about germs, it's about nurturing your bodily terrain. That is what brought smallpox and the other so-called diseases under control. Millard wrote a letter to the, edit uh, the editor of the British Medical Journal, which was published February 20 in 1915, and I will read you this letter here. He says, Sir, I have to thank you for the very fair manner in which you summarize my position in your review of my book in your issue for February 13th. I note with gratification that you consider the work certainly merits the dispassionate consideration of epidemiologists. You proceed, however, to say that you are unable to endorse my conclusions because I have not proved statistically to your satisfaction that sanitation alone is superior as a means of protecting a community against smallpox to sanitation plus vaccination. You admit that the, the data for such statistical proof are difficult to obtain, but I would go further and say that for a satisfactory comparison such as you suggest, they are non-existent, inasmuch as practically no other town besides Leicester has seriously attempted over, over a sufficient number of years to make the experiment of dispensing with infantile vaccination and at the same time of depending on sanitation. I would submit, therefore, that you are making an unreasonable and impracticable demand. Moreover, I contend that in a question like that of compulsory infantile vaccination as a state institution, the onus of proof rests with the advocates of compulsion and cannot, in fairness, be put upon those who merely appeal for reconsideration. Surely it is sufficient if the latter can, be, uh, can show that the arguments which have hitherto been relied upon by the advocates of compulsion are, to a large extent, no longer tenable in the light of modern experience. And he signs off. I completely agree with him there. He, he is uh, highlighting a basic tenet of, of law, which is that he who affirms bears the burden of proof. In other words, the onus of the burden of proof is on the person making the claim. And it's the industry or the cult of vaccination making all these claims about how amazing and wonderful it is. And the burden of proof therefore relies on them. They have historically failed to be able to produce evidence to support their claims. And they continue to do so in spectacular fashion. Okay, moving to number four. Vaccine campaigns were always known to cause outbreaks. In Compulsory Vaccination in England, published in 1844, social reformer William Tebb made the following observations. Vaccination was made compulsory by an Act of Parliament in the year 1853, again in 1867, and still more stringent in 1871. Since 1853, we've had three epidemics of smallpox, each being more severe than the one preceding. End quote. One well-suppressed historical trend regarding vaccines is that serious outbreaks, or so-called outbreaks, have a habit of occurring in the most heavily vaccinated areas, such as they did in Leicester, and also dodging less vaccinated areas, which really tells you something. It's a very powerful statement. 1918 Spanish flu epidemic is a classic case. Vaccination caused the so-called outbreak, that is mass poisoning, of millions of people, but the finger was pointed instead at a so-called virus as the culprit. And I covered the Spanish flu fraud in, uh, in an episode, an early episode of the podcast. I believe it was episode 25. It's called Can You Catch the Flu? Check it out. Only the most facile logic, ladies and gentlemen, presupposes that those areas enduring outbreaks must have not followed vaccine procedure correctly or had the misfortune of so-called bad batches or whatever other rationalizations get thrown out there. The logical conclusion to draw from the evidence is that the vaccine campaigns were actually creating epidemics of poisoning, which were spun as outbreaks of contagion to cover up the failure of vaccines. 
Now, eminent medical men recognized that the vaccines were responsible for the outbreaks in the 1800s, but did anybody actually listen to them? And while advocates of the cult of jabism argue that correlation doesn't equal causation, which is true enough, um, no independent investigator is actually going to be satisfied with ignoring the mountains of evidence indicating causality, which do date back to the very beginnings of vaccination. And medical doctors of the time, who were not completely hypnotized and beguiled by the rhetoric, saw this. They saw that vaccines not only did not protect people, but also harmed them. And nothing has changed in the last 200 years. It's exactly the case today. And that's because the people pushing the jabs don't understand, the scientists don't understand how nature actually works. They don't understand why people end up with symptoms of various disease conditions in the first place. So therefore, how can their solutions possibly work, especially when they're so unnatural? And when you look at the ingredients, obviously inherently unhealthy for the human body and downright toxic in many instances. I mean, this stuff just should not be injected into the human body. Okay, so big pharma apologists do like to warn us of the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, meaning after, therefore, before. But some of us extend our efforts beyond fancy rhetoric. And we also note that the correlation here has a bi-directional effect. In other words, the disease incidence and mortality regularly increase in the wake of vaccination and also regularly drop with a corresponding decrease in vaccination. It goes both ways. So Lester conquered smallpox only after abandoning mass vaccination. Also consider, ladies and gentlemen, the child mortality rate in America, the most heavily vaccinated nation on earth, ranked near last of all developed nations in 2017, coming in at a woeful 55th place on the global scorecard. Behind countries such as South Korea, Slovenia, Belarus, Macau, and many others with less technological and medical resources. The US ranked, uh, they also ranked a paltry 33rd out of 36 OECD countries in 2018. America's child mortality rate continues to be absolutely abysmal, which is a searing indictment of government and big farmers, every child a pincushion mentality. Now let's have a look at the three epidemics that struck Leicester when they started to push mandatory vaccination. So the first, we see the first epidemic lasting 1857 to 1859 tallied 14,244 deaths. The following epidemic from 1863 to 65 tallied 20,059 deaths. And the third and the worst, 1870 to 1872, tallied 44,840. Now, the increase of the population of Leicester between the first and the second epidemics was only 7%, and yet there was a very highly disproportionate increase in the uh, smallpox, sorry, yeah, smallpox mortality rates. The increase of smallpox in the same time period was nearly 50%. Compare that to only 7% growth, whereas the incidence of smallpox went through the roof, 50%. Now, the increase of the population from the second to the third epidemic was 10%, slightly more, only 10%. The increase of smallpox in the same period was 120%. Deaths from smallpox in the first 10 years following the enforcement of vaccination from 1854 to 1863 tallied 33,515 deaths. In the second period from 1864 to 1873, it went even higher, far higher, to a total of 70,458 deaths. As the deaths increased at an astronomical rate, the population increase was trailing behind at a snail's pace. Clearly, we can see what is causing the problem here. All right, remember that Lesser abandoned infantile vaccination and eliminated smallpox simply by thoroughly enhancing their sanitation methods. At least that is the more plausible explanation or the primary alternative explanation that we are given to the mainstream narrative. 
Today, our program, Fear of Smallpox, Flu, and Other Dreaded Diseases, is completely out of proportion with reality, and it shows that we have forgotten how potent basic natural common sense measures can be in keeping a society healthy. It starts with the individual keeping themselves healthy. Obviously, I do not support a collectivist mentality. And it's also worth noting, ladies and gents, that so-called exposure does not equal illness. The body's internal terrain must be conducive to the development of symptoms. The contagion myth lacks the explanatory power of the terrain paradigm. Why does one person who supposedly caught the disease then not manage to infect the person next to them? Well, why is that? You know, according to contagion, they should both be infected. But it's not that simple, and quite frankly, the evidence shows nature doesn't work that way. Now, a recent study on the infectivity of asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 carriers, supposed carriers, determined that after exposing 455 people to an asymptomatic carrier, not a single one of them became infected. Zero. And the authors had to, had to conclude that infectivity via so-called asymptomatic carry, carriers might be weak. You think so? You think so? Really? Wow, I'm glad we funded that study. I mean, you know, <laughs> nobody could have figured that out on their own. I mean, how do you contract a disease from somebody who isn't sick? If you're not sick, you don't have the disease. If you don't have the disease, how do you pass it on to somebody? I mean, this is insane. This 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 logic is is non-logic. It's completely irrational. I mean, an asymptomatic carrier is meaningless language. This is Orwellian bastardizing and twisting of language and the inversion of logic. An asymptomatic carrier is someone who is not sick, put simply. And virology cannot prove that they are carrying anything at all that matters whatsoever. Their methods are completely fraudulent and delusional. And below is a graph, which is also from William Tebb's book, showing that the mandating of, I shouldn't say below, I should say on the screen. <laughs> I'm reading my, uh, my text here from an old article. This is William Tebb's graph, and it shows that the mandating of the smallpox vaccination did not prevent the mortality rate from more than doubling within a span of 30 years, while the population increased by only about one third. So it's a completely disproportionate increase. It does not match the population growth at all. Why is that? Well, because maniacs were roaming around with needles, contaminating and poisoning people. And they ended up dying, apparently, of smallpox. Now, the vaccine mandate obviously ensured that the problem intensified. So we need to spell it out for the cult of vaccinia. The more contaminants the body takes on, the more symptoms are likely to intensify. And the closer you push the organism towards toxic overload and death. Duh. So in summarizing the origins of vaccination fraud, cover-ups, and the resultant va pro-vaccine dogma, Dr. Jennifer Craig of the Modern Era, who is a PhD, tells us that the report of Dr. William Farr from 1807 to 1883, who was the compiler of statistics of the Register General of London and considered to be the first developer of vital statistics, stated, Smallpox attained its maximum mortality after vaccination was introduced. The mean annual mortality for 10,000 population from 1850 to 1869 was at the rate of 2.04, whereas after compulsory vaccination in 1871, the death rate was 10.24. In 1872, the death rate was 8.33, and this after the most laudable efforts to extend vaccination by legislative enactments. The compulsory vaccination law was repealed in 1907. By 1919, England and Wales had become one of the least vaccinated countries and had only 28 deaths from smallpox out of a population of 37.8 million people. According to official figures of the Registrar General of England, 109 children are under five years in England and Wales died of smallpox between 1910 and 1933. In that same period, 270 died from vaccination. 
more than double the number. Between 1934 and 1961, not one smallpox death was recorded, but 115 children under five years died from smallpox vaccination. End quote. All right, point five, lucky last, statistical wizardry, making polio and autism disappear. And this has also got to do with how they manipulated our perception of smallpox. So one of the linchpins of the vaccine machine has always been systematic and often high-level deception in order to maintain the illusion of efficacy. Put bluntly, when things don't pan out as devotees of the temple of vaccinia want them to, they simply tinker with the data and play semantic games to create new figures that appear to support their agenda. Sometimes the tactic is more straightforward. Gather the data together and throw it in the bin so it never sees the light of day. And this is exactly as William Thompson recently elucidated, I should say, you know, relatively recently, because this goes back to around uh, 2013. And he admitted that he was involved in this MMR scandal, whereby the CDC knew of the MMR autism link and deliberately buried the evidence for some 14 years. If Black Lives Matter to you, ladies and gents, please note that African-American boys were found to be some four times more likely to end up autistic than their Caucasian counterparts after receiving the MMR jab. Let's end the carnage. If you really think that black lives matter, why don't we start by protecting black children and stop sacrificing them on the altar of jabism? As Carol Ann Wright explains, the debate about vaccine safety did not truly take hold until a 1998 Lancet study was published by Andrew Wakefield, MD, which made a correlation between increased rates of autism in certain members of the population and the administration of the MMR vaccine. Over the next few years, several additional studies by different researchers also found a link. In response, the CDC performed their own study in 2001, a case-controlled study meaning they did not look at any physical children. Their findings were published in the journal Pediatrics 2004. But the scandal didn't kick off until years later when Thompson came out, as, as I mentioned. So for many people following the vaccine, as I'm continuing to quote here from Caroline Wright, for many people following the vaccine autism controversy, the CDC study conclusively closed the MMR vaccine debate. That is, until the lead researcher, Dr. William Thompson, came forward years later and revealed key documents associated with the study were destroyed, showing that there had been a massive manipulation of data and an intentional cover-up. And Thompson tells us, I regret that my co-authors and I omitted statistically significant information. Meanwhile, Dr. Andrew Wayfield was defamed, ostracized, chased out of England, and left to pick up the pieces of his life without a shred of evidence supporting the vindictive and fictitious establishment narrative created against him. Yet while this is a prime example of vaccine fraud in the modern era, folks, let's refocus on pre-World War II material for an historical perspective that will be easy to digest. Now, vaccine apologists are quick to object to any criticism of vaccination with the famously asinine trope, do you want to bring back polio? But not once have I ever encountered such a person who had any notion at all of what actually causes polio. But more to the point, Dr. Morris Beto Bailey, who was a member of the Royal College of Surgeons, wrote in 1934, and I quote directly, After vaccination was introduced, cases of aseptic meningitis were reported as a separate disease from polio, but such were counted as polio before the vaccine was introduced. So they just changed the definition of polio and created a new category. So boom, there's an immediate artificial reduction in the number of polio cases. And I'll continue quoting from uh, Bailey here. He tells us, The Ministry of Health admitted that the vaccine status of the individual is a guiding factor in diagnosis. If a person who is vaccinated contracts the disease, the disease is simply recorded under a different name. Those who contracted polio after the first inoculation were placed on the non-inoculated list. Ladies and gentlemen, can you get any more dishonest than that? That is an outright lie. They simply lie to us. 
people who got polio after the first polio inoculation were put on an inoculate, a non-inoculated list. They pretended that they never received the jab in the first place. And he, he continues by saying, it's obvious that this practice of screening statistics, apparently in order to suppress facts unfavorable to immunization, invalidates most of the evidence brought forward by the supporters of immunization. And so it does. In short, when the numbers don't support vaccination dogma, medical authorities simply change them to suit the purposes of their business. And remember, the CDC is a vaccine company which owns patents on multiple vaccines. They are in business, folks, and the business is to make as much money as quickly and as frequently as possible wherever they possibly can. They're parasites and criminals. And it's been standard practice over the last two centuries, and it's a tradition proudly carried on today as whistleblowers like Thompson have shown. That is the constant manipulation of data, manipulation of statistics in order to support the vaccine dogma. And frankly, folks, vaccine, vaccination did not get rid of polio. That is completely delusional thinking. Quite the opposite, in fact. Vaccine-induced cases of polio were subsequently classed as something else to hide the damage. And I'm going to give you a, quite a, a bit longer of a quote here. Dr. Bernard Greenberg, who is a biostatistics expert, was chairman of the Committee on Evaluation and Standards of the American Public Health Association during the 1950s. He testified at a panel discussion that was used as evidence for congressional hearings on polio vaccine in 1962. During these hearings, he elaborated on the problems associated with polio statistics and disputed claims for the vaccine's effectiveness. He attributed the dramatic decline in polio cases to a change in reporting practices by physicians. Just to clarify that, the dramatic decline in the number of polio cases was the result of physicians altering the way they reported on their cases. So essentially defining this stuff out of existence. I'll continue quoting from him here. Less cases were identified as polio after the vaccination for very specific reasons. Note that initially two examinations at least 24 hours apart was all that was required to diagnose polio. Laboratory confirmation and presence of residual par uh, paralysis was not required, but in 1955, the criteria were changed to conform more closely to the definition used in the 1954 field trials. Residual paralysis was determined 10 to 20 days after the onset of illness, and again 50 to 70 days after onset. This change in definition meant that in 1955, we started reporting a new disease, namely paralytic poliomyelitis with a longer-lasting paralysis. This means, folks, that fewer cases qualified as polio as many simply did not last this long. And to continue, continue quoting from Greenberg here, Furthermore, diagnostic procedures have continued to be refined. Coxsackie virus infections and aseptic meningitis have been distinguished from paralytic poliomyelitis. Now, I don't like to get into the virus thing here, but I'm just quoting what he said. I don't believe in viruses, obviously, but let's just continue here for the sake of um, getting on with it. Prior to 1954, large numbers of these cases undoubtedly were mislabeled as paralytic poliomyelitis. Thus, simply by changes in diagnostic criteria, the number of paralytic cases was predetermined as used. Okay, so considering the embarrassingly large sums of money that governments have invested in vaccine campaigns and the attendant propaganda and psychological warfare used to justify them, it's somewhat understandable that in their cowardly bureaucratic state of mind, rather than admit to such monstrous mistakes, said bureaucrats and medical stooges simply try to bury the evidence and save face. 
After Jenner's death, when vaccinated people continued to contract smallpox, repeatedly proving the fraud of the smallpox vaccine, their medical records showed they had pustular eczema instead. I'm going to repeat that. When vaccinated people continued to get smallpox, medical records did not document it as smallpox. They changed it to eczema. Dr. Bernard Shaw, who lived from 1856 to 1950, recalled seeing this data recording fraud firsthand. And I quote, During the last considerable epidemic at the turn of the century, I was a member of the Health Committee of London Borough Council, and I learned how the credit of vaccination is kept up statistically by diagnosing all the revaccinated cases of smallpox as pustular eczema, varioloid, or whatnot. Anything except smallpox. It reminds me of the saying, folks, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. So instead of admitting the dangerous and ineffectual nature of the earliest vaccines, Authorities plowed ahead, creating more and more vaccines, all on the same superstitious premises that gave birth to the mythology now rammed down our throats as sacrosanct science, and more insanely, the so-called gold standard of science, when there is actually no science applied to it at all. But if it's sacrosanct, ladies and gents, it can't be science, it's religion. And the fact remains that medical authorities have been lying and covering their tracks all along, just as confidence man Edward Jenner, the godfather of the vaccine lie, did right from the start. If vaccines are so safe and effective, why then, after Japan started compulsorily, uh, sorry, compulsory smallpox vaccination in 1872, why did their smallpox rates increase thereafter? And after 20 years, their records indicated 165,774 cases, with 29,979 deaths, all of them who had received the vaccine. All of them had received it. Meanwhile, in Australia, where there was no such compulsion to vaccinate, there were only three deaths in a span of 15 years. Safe and effective? Hmm. Clearly, we are preventing these conditions somehow, and it starts with the basics, folks. Psychological well-being, nutrition, sanitation, hygiene. All of this prevents the emergence of symptoms by eliminating the underlying causal factors that create the potential for it in the first place. Vaccines came later and falsely claimed the credit. And that's merely a historically accurate statement, but you know, who needs history when we can just keep chanting the holy mantras of the Temple of Vaccinia and drown out the inconveniences of history, eh? Historically, smallpox continued to infect Europe's population until plumbing infrastructure became commonplace. And when the Roman Empire crumbled, sanitation became a lost art, and their society paid the price. Plague after plague struck areas of dense population. The lesson, folks, it is ill-conceived living conditions, psychological stress, trauma, bad water, toxicity, and malnutrition that encourage disease symptoms, not an absence of vaccines. And I'll tell you a quote here from Dr. John Tilden, who lived from 1851 to 1940, told us, There is no question that perfect sanitation has almost obliterated smallpox, and sooner or later will dispose of it entirely. Of course, when that time comes, in all probability, the credit will be given to vaccination. And of course, that was very prescient of him. That is exactly what happened, and it is only because the cult of vaccinia has such a massive marketing budget, they have such deep pockets, they can basically just rewrite and hijack history and tell us whatever bullshit they want. There is actually no such thing as a vaccine deficiency, even though all medical dogma on vaccines directly implies that such a deficiency can exist. It doesn't, it never has, it never will. This is pure fantasy engineered by people who do not care who they hurt in their grab for power and profit. And to illustrate that that point, I will tell you just from a recent news 
news article, the CDC boss, who uh, whose name I will find here on the page, uh, Dr. Carol Baker, she was recently caught on film describing what she called a solution, and this is during the Achieving Childhood Vaccine Success in the U.S. panel discussion, sponsored by the National Meningitis Association in New York City, and she, she tells us that she has a solution. She says, so I have the solution. Every study published in the last five years, when you look at vaccine refusers, we'll just get rid of all the whites in the United States. Guess who wants to get vaccinated the most? Immigrants. Now, I don't know what else to add to that, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, if the demented psychology of these people is not shining through there for you, I don't know what else to tell you. They're talking about the fact that really it's the more educated people who are refusing the jabs. The more informed people get, the more they want to stay away from the pointy things. It's as simple as that. And we've known, we've known about that trend for some time. Baker was actually appointed chair of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization by Obama's Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius in 2009. Um, She's just another one of these crazy cultists, these unhinged lunatics who's um, really just completely archontified, hijacked by whatever this mind virus is that's that's inhabiting these people's psyches. And um, they they would rather have a a nation of um, vaccine-crippled, poisoned, fragile infertile immigrants than they would have a nation of, you know, healthy, unvaccinated, robust um, Americans in this instance. And we can apply that to any country around the world. They are trying to destroy the fabric of society. Okay, so let me return back to my my, um, primary thread here. The simple fact is that it's impossible for vaccines to conquer disease symptoms because vaccination is aimed at creating so-called immunity against microscopic entities in the body that are not even responsible for causing symptoms of disease in the first place. For example, bacteria associated with tuberculosis are are not actually causing the tuberculosis condition. They're actually there cleaning up dead cells. They're part of the cleanup crew. We don't blame firefighters for showing up to put out a fire. We understand that they have a role to play. They didn't start the fire. They're working to put it out. We've got to stop blaming the wrong things. And if modern medicine has misattributed the causal factors of disease symptoms and is pursuing an illusion, then how can their attempt at a prevention or cure possibly succeed? Vaccinating against so-called infectious microbes is like building a security fence to keep unicorns out so that your lawn doesn't get trampled, except the security fence won't poison you. Billions of dollars have been wasted chasing the pseudoscientific chimeras of virology, and many lives, many millions of lives, I should say, have been damaged and snuffed out. And that's never been more evident since they launched the C19 pointy things. And I could go on and on with the stats and examples, but hopefully at this, at this point you get the idea. And those of you who are still inclined to defend the Temple of Vaccinia are encouraged to look at more recent material that continues to prove the ineffectiveness and inherent toxicity and danger of all vaccines, because there is no shortage of that if you are willing to come out of denial and actually engage reality as it is, not how you would like it to be. And if you won't do this for your own sake, then please do it for the children that we are supposed to be protecting from liars, tyrants, and sociopaths. And that's all for this episode, ladies and gentlemen. I'll wrap it up there. Thank you for listening. If you found this information useful, please share it around to your networks. And I will see you inside, well, if I don't see you inside the Truthiversity at truthiversity.com, which is where I put all my premium members-only content. Love to have you in there. Head over to truthiversity.com for more information on that. Very, very, very affordable members' rates. And you won't miss out on anything. You'll get full versions of everything, all the video stuff, all the cool stuff that I do that doesn't have a home out in the public realm. That's where it goes, into the Truthiversity. Uh, And if I don't see you there, I will see you around the socials for the next episode. Appreciate your listening and take care till next time.